You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about our church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Well, we can go home. (laughs) There you go. Uh, That is a sermon, isn't it not? And hey, thanks for wearing the tie and bringing uh, us us up to respectability in in our dress wear. Thanks, Dean, for being clear in the reading, public reading of Scripture. Yeah, that's, that's going to be one of the longer texts that we, uh, I'm going to have to engage um, as we go through the book of Acts. As we get into the latter part of Acts, just kind of give you a heads up, there's going to be several more texts that we're going to, that's going to be a little lengthy, and I do, I'm committed to the public reading of, of Scripture. That's why um, we had Dean come up here and, and share that, even though it's long. Now, truth is, I could have probably parsed that up into two, three sermons, for sure. Uh, it wasn't until maybe last night when I realized maybe I should have done that. <laughs> but it was a little too far along in the process, and so here we are this morning. Nonetheless, it is God's Word, and it is an ongoing narrative. It's all one story that we can contend with this morning. And as I was studying this passage and preparing for this passage, I was, I was struck by where we were led to. And it was simply this question. Why do you rejoice? I don't know if you caught it at the end, but it was where we're, we're going to go. Verse 41, 42. We're going to simply ask the question, and leading to that, why do you rejoice? Certainly, we could stop to think about a myriad of reasons why we rejoice. Uh, Sharice and I rejoiced when we got married, right? Oh, it was a wonderful day. We rejoiced at the birth of our children. We, we found out, when we found out our, our, my, my uh, mother-in-law was cancer-free, we rejoiced. We rejoiced and God, God made it clear that we were to plant a church here in the Des Moines metro. There's many reasons why we can rejoice. But would you rejoice if you felt like others were bullying you? Would you ever rejoice for being pushed around or being physically persecuted? Would you rejoice over that? Well, I do not think we should rejoice by being indiscriminately bullied or persecuted. I believe the Bible has clear categories for love and justice, right? It's clear categories for love and justice. Biblical justice and love pushes back against indiscriminate persecution. But what if you were persecuted for what you believe? Would you rejoice? As we walk through this lengthy passage, allow this question to linger. Here's the question you can ask yourself as we go through this. Would I, you put in your name, rejoice if I was being persecuted physically, verbally, however, for the name of Christ? Last week I mentioned there was a twist in our plot in the story of Acts, right? Um, Before Acts 5, it was clear that persecution of the church was, was coming in from the outside. Then we saw last week how Satan tried to infiltrate the church from within. Now we swing back to seeing what it looks like to see persecution come from the outside again. And while we have seen some of these themes already in Acts, in Acts 5, the pressure on the church is actually getting ratcheted up. 
if prior to Acts 5 there was just like a general annoyance like of Peter's preaching, all the miracles being performed, the switching of allegiances by the people, just a general annoyance, now we begin to see the jealousy and the envy of the persecutors. Now how does the church respond? Right? Well, I will end this sermon by looking at how the church should respond. All that is happening in this lengthy passage is really leading us to a particular verse at the end of the passage, at the end of Acts 5. So I'm going to approach this passage in a way that I don't think I've preached before, at least I do not recall. What I'm going to do is simply walk through this narrative from verse 12 all the way to verse 42. Um, That's not necessarily unusual. What might seem a bit different is I'm going to be your uh, living, breathing, speaking commentator. I open up a commentary that kind of runs through what this particular passage is all about. about. That's what I'm going to be for you this morning. I'm going to give a little bit of color of what's going on, and then at times we're going to slow down look at a few details. Uh, Think about when you listen to a sports game on the radio. I was doing this uh, yesterday for a little bit when I was listening to the Hawkeyes lose, right? He's giving color, giving the, what do the uniforms look like, helping me along to understand the narrative of the game. I'm going to kind of do that for us this morning. I want to do this while sticking with the integrity of the text. Perhaps it might seem, seem the same to you, but it'll feel different for me. In previous weeks, if you remember, I told you about a pattern that we see in the book of Acts. And we're going to see it again this morning. We'll continue to see it as we go along. First, we see that through the hands of the apostles, signs and wonders were regularly done. Verse 12. We see between verse 12 and 15, Peter and the rest of the apostles find themselves once again at Solomon's portico located in the temple. So word is getting out about the miracles being performed by the apostles. So people, this is, here's how we see the expansion of the gospel. Words getting out, people from outside Jerusalem are coming in. They're like, did you hear about that? Did you hear about this? That guy got healed? I'm, I'm going. I'm going to Jerusalem. The work of the Spirit was so powerful that the sick were healed by the shadow of Peter. Verse 15. Now, let's pause for a moment. Um, I am certainly a continuationist, and I believe the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for today. But even I've got to admit that being healed by another person's shadow is not normative. Just going to put that there. Not normative. It is not normative, but the offering of this information by Luke, who wrote it, does show us the power of God. That's what it's there for. The power of God to heal. God is making a statement about his power to a skeptical and yet watching world. But what do we see happens to the apostles because of what God is doing through them? All the um, religious fuddy-duddies, that's what I'm calling them throughout Acts, become jealous. Here are the verses, uh, 17 and 18. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. So let's follow the logic here. Because people were being healed, 
which is a good thing, the religious leaders threw the apostles in public jail. Well, that doesn't seem to make sense to me. I don't know about you. It doesn't make sense. Wouldn't we all rejoice if people were healed of cancer or some type of debilitating disease, regardless of who did it? We would rejoice. What we certainly see is that the religious leaders didn't like the attention taken off them. Their audience was shrinking, and they didn't like it. I'm not so sure that some religious leaders act much differently today. Just being honest. I love the church. I think the way the gospel goes forth is that the church is the primary means in which the message goes out. I love the church. But I'm not going to hide behind the fact we still see that today. And I have to be warned of that. Even if we were to study church history, the greatest enemy of the gospel have been the jealous religious leader. R.C. Sproul says it better, me, better than I. If we study church history, which we tend not to do, we will note a pattern. Those most hostile to the purity of the gospel have been clergy. I love church history. Love church history. Go to my, go to my uh, office. Church history. Church history. Church history. All over. He's right. He's absolutely 100% right. That is as true today, Sproul continues, as it was ever before. Most of the guns aimed against the scripture in our day do not come from secularists, excuse me, who could care less. They come from unbelieving seminary professors and ministers who simply will not identify with the truth of the gospel. And again, I think this is true. And what do we see driving the religious leaders in Acts 5? I already said it. Jealousy. Jealousy is driving the religious leaders into irrational places. Proverbs 6.34. Jealousy makes a man furious. That's what's going on here in Acts 5. Pastor Kent Hughes comments on jealousy. It is by nature destructive. These Sadducee leaders were envious of the popularity of the apostles and were self-protective of their own prestige. The crowd should be gathering for us, not them. Um, if I can get on top of my soapbox for a moment, um, I think it's worth mentioning that religious leaders can oftentimes be more concerned, I think this is what we see here, more concerned to protect their own name their church, their denomination, more than they are concerned about the name of Christ. When this happens, the gospel mission is lost. It's lost. Oftentimes, what motivates the protection of a name other than Christ is jealousy. There are other motives, of course, but this is the one highlighted this morning. The gospel demands that everything, including your good name and my good name, is to be laid down for the sake of Christ. Just listen to what Jesus said in the gospel of Luke. If anyone would come after me, if you're going to follow Jesus, if you call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ, 
Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. I I take these words of Jesus to include that we need to lay down what the world thinks of us for the sake of the gospel. We don't want to be so religious where titles, positions, and status are more important than our Savior. The religious leaders in Acts 5 were upset. They were concerned about their little temples that they had created for themselves. The authority that they had was slipping through their, their fingers, right? They didn't like the camera taken off of them and being moved over to these apostles, these rebel rousers. So what they do? What the religious leaders then do to the apostles? Well, we've seen this before. They dragged them back to prison. <laughs> let's go get them. Let's shut it down. Let's take them back to prison. If it seems like deja vu, it's because we, we already saw this in Acts 4, a chapter earlier. So after being thrown into public prison, we once again see the power of God. The Lord sends his angel. This is remarkable. He sends his angel to open the prison door. God is doing what people cannot explain. After setting the apostles free, the angel tells the apostles to go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And here is the pattern I've been mentioning throughout Acts. Once again, we see the power of God to perform miracles. But what's the point of the miracles? It's leading to the proclamation of the gospel. Miracle proclamation. Miracle proclamation. Again, we see it. The angel says to them to preach about life. The direction given by the angel should conjure up for us passages like John 6.35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. And John 14.6, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The apostles would have known what the angel was telling them to say because it was Jesus who first told it to them. They got it. Time to go preach. Go preach about Jesus. As for the religious leaders, man, I would love to have been a like, fly on the wall when they all gathered together to try to figure out what happened in that jail, jail cell, right? Just, I just wish we'd had a camera there where I could just... Just see the expression in people's faces. What, what were they thinking? What were they saying that the text clearly doesn't give us, right? After the apostles were set free by the angel, I do think the frustration of the religious leaders only increased. Here are all the people that gathered together to try to figure out what happened in this jail cell. We have a high priest, right? The high priest. <laughs> we have the religious council. The senate of the people of Israel the captain of the temple, and the chief priests, who's different from the high priest, all looking around, wondering, what happened? What do we do with this? How did these guys get out of prison? We had guards. It's not like, you know, 
we locked them in our bedroom, and you could grab one of those pens growing up and, and undo the pen and stick it in the hole, and it opens the door. That's how it happened. It was locked. There were guards. Someone tell me what happened here. Here, what is recorded in verse 23 by the officers who went to check on the apostles, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the door. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. So clearly the angel of the Lord got past the guards. We do not know how, and I'm not going to speculate. They unlocked the prison door, and then someone locked the prison door while they were on the way out. Talk about a head-scratcher. Where did the apostles go? If I were one of the religious fuddy-duddies, I would have been annoyed. But then to add to the annoyance, someone came to the religious leaders, verse 25, and said, at least this is how I pictured in my mind, right? They're, here, they're all gathered together trying to figure this out, and someone comes and says, um, you're looking for these guys you put into prison, Right? I'm imagining like an intern coming, giving the bad news. Um, you're looking for me. I think I found him. Oh, yeah, where are they at? They're at the temple. At the temple again? And um, to make matters worse, Peter's preaching. Again? He's preaching again? How come this guy just can't be quiet? How many times have we got to warn this man? Yep, just like a boomerang, right? Peter is back in the same place. He's in the temple preaching about Jesus. Now, let's pause for a moment. If you were one of the religious leaders, at what point do you just throw your hands up in the air and say, we've tried everything but kill them? We tried to reason with them. We put them in our religious prison. We put them in public prison. We have sternly warned them. We have beaten John and Peter. Yet the people love them. Perhaps we need to consider, reconsider some of our life choices here. This isn't working. But a jealous person is, is not able to see things clearly. So what did they do? the religious leaders sent the captain and a few officers to the temple to suppress the preaching of the gospel again and to bring the apostles back to the religious leaders. They likely took them to the Sanhedrin, which is basically the place where they gather to talk about religious business. But notice what it says in verse 26. They were not taken out of the temple by force because the religious leaders were afraid of being stoned by the people. So Peter and the apostles willingly followed the officers. They were taken without force because the officers were afraid for their own life. There is also an element of trying to save face with the people, right? Uh, kind of like saying to the people, hey, we just, we're just going to take them. We're just going to ask them questions. Nothing to see here. If you remember Acts 4.18, and the last time Peter and John were dragged in front of the religious leaders, they were warned not to teach about Jesus. The religious leaders repeat the same charge here in Acts 5.28. But notice the self-deception of their concern. They said, because you guys are teaching about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because you're filling Jerusalem with this teaching, it's being perceived that the death of Jesus happened because of us. That's what they were saying. 
the self-deception. It's crazy. Now, wait a minute here. That is exactly what happened when the people were for the religious leaders. They were happy to kill Jesus, right? They got all the people together and said, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Now that the people were getting saved and the sick were being healed and the people were looking to the apostles, the religious leaders wanted nothing to do with the death of Jesus. When it was convenient for them, they owned up to the death of Jesus. When it wasn't convenient for them, they deflected from the facts. We saw this last week, right? A bunch of hypocrites. It's like, own up, man. Come on. Keep your story straight. And in Peter-like fashion, he isn't going to let... (laughs) the religious leaders, off the hook. Peter reminds them, he reminds the religious leaders that their mandate is to preach the gospel, and that comes from God. So the religious leaders can try all they want, but unless they are murdered, they will continue to preach. And then Peter is like, guys, I hear what you're saying, but newsflash, you did kill Jesus. You killed Jesus. Verse 30. You're the ones who hung him on the tree. And then with straight gospel truth, Peter says this to the murderous religious leaders. But God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those whom obey him. So let's slow down for a moment and look at what Peter is saying. I want to slow down because these 44 Greek words, the religious leaders, went from annoyed to enraged. Here's why. First, to say Jesus was exalted, lifted up into the heavens, like Elijah And is now seated at the right hand of the Father is blasphemy to the Jews. It's like, you can't say that, Peter. You can't say that. All this would have been blasphemy because what the religious leaders would have been hearing is that Jesus is God, which is exactly what Peter was saying. That's Peter's point. He is God. But then Peter also says he is leader and savior. I do not think. The translation of leader is sufficient to describe what Peter is saying. After all, there are all kinds of leaders in the church, in society, etc. The Christian Standard Bible says that Jesus is the ruler. The NASB translates this word as prince. I, I like to go back to Acts 3.15, which really gets to the point. When Peter previously preached to the Jews, he said to them, And you killed the author of life, author, whom God raised from the dead. This Greek word author is the same word we see here. Jesus is the author of all life, their life. It was an audacious statement for Peter to make and for the religious leaders to hear. And it's the author of life and Savior who offers them repentance. Verse 29, if they repent, turn from their sin and profess Jesus as their Savior, they will be forgiven. They'll be forgiven. Same message we preach today. 
Same message. Turn. Repent. Turn. Move away. Move past. Put down your sin. Change and turn to Jesus. And be forgiven. An old message that really never gets old. It's the life changing power of the gospel. That's what Peter tells these religious leaders. Now, if the religious leaders' hackles were not up prior to Peter's statement, they were now. For them, only Yahweh is able to offer forgiveness through the various sacrifices of temple worship. But Peter says, nope, nope. Forgiveness comes through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Peter and the rest of the apostles were witnesses to the life and fulfilled promises of Jesus. The Holy Spirit continues to confirm Jesus as the author and Savior of all life. And cue the rage now. Cue the rage. As we kind of go through this narrative, we're going from jealousy to rage. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Acts 5, verse 33. I don't know about you, but it would take a lot for me to say that I wanted to kill somebody. Even if I was speaking in hyperbole, I couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. But these guys had no problem making this statement. They already walked down the road of rage, which led to the destruction of another when they murdered Jesus. And now they want the same for these apostles. And Peter would have been at the top of their hit list. So I hope you're tracking with the narrative so far. But now we see another interesting twist to this plot. We've got one level-headed leader among all these religious leaders. Gamaliel. The text says Gamaliel was a teacher of the law and was respected by, by everyone in the religious community. So it's like, hey, you got a question? Go to that guy. How do we figure this out? Go to that guy. So I picture him as the wise sage who finally speaks up. Gamaliel was also the Apostle Paul's teacher before he was converted. More on that when we get to Acts 9. Long story short, Gamaliel tells the apostles to leave the room. So it's like, all right, we're all gathered here, apostles. Do you just step outside so I can just talk with these folks? And so that's what happens. They separate. He basically tells them, as the apostles have now left the room, guys, we're not seeing nothing new, right? Do you remember Thutis, right? He ran his mouth all around Jerusalem and claimed to be something or someone that he is not. You remember him? Sure, a few guys followed him, but remember, Thutis died, and when he died, his followers scattered. No one talks about Thutis anymore. Do you remember this guy named Judas the Galilean? Remember him? Same thing, same story, different day. Claimed to be someone that he was not. Had people follow him. He died. Where are his followers? Who talks about Judas the Galilean anymore? And after giving his spiel, Gamaliel continues, So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. Now hear this. This is remarkable. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, listen, it'll, it'll fail just like Thutis. It'll fail just like Judas the Galilean. But 
if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might be even found opposing God. We do not know what was motivating Gamaliel, but his counsel was heard by everyone. Don't overreact yet. Let's simply let them go and see what happens. But before the apostles were let go, they received another beating. They received another beating. Now, it's easy to read past verse 40 and think nothing of it, right? Especially as we go through Acts, and this seems to be a a common theme, right? Let's go get the apostles, let's beat them, let's put them in prison, right? But I I don't want to move past that quickly. Unless you realize what went into someone being beat in the first century, it's hard to really understand what was going on. The apostles did not receive a mere slap on the cheek, right? It's likely they were beaten with a rod. A rod that if you hit somebody strong enough, your skin would be flayed. Like, I want you to understand the gravity of what it meant to be beaten in the first century. While it was strategic for the apostles to be let go, mercy was not extended when it came to them getting beaten over and over and over and over. What is is amazing in a place I want to dwell on right now is how the apostles responded to the beating. Think After they left the council, they were rejoicing. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. I mean, we got 28 chapters in Acts, and we're just in chapter 5. And what have you already seen? Ongoing persecution. Right? And this will continue. Other themes certainly will arise as we go through Acts. We'll talk about deacons next week as we get into Acts 6. But notice this. They rejoiced. I mean, really. They rejoiced that they were flayed with a rod because of the name they professed, Jesus. Who lives like that? Who talks like that? Right? It's a remarkable way to live. The New Testament is replete with references to rejoicing even if you're suffering. Here are just two references. One from Romans. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. Can you just imagine them saying this to themselves as they were living it out here in Acts? We rejoice in our suffering, knowing that our suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So, you can rejoice in your suffering knowing that your suffering is not in vain. God meets you and grows you. And here's 1 Peter 4.13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. When you suffer, when you're suffering for the name of Christ, Christian you understand in a greater way the suffering of your Savior. 
we don't like this. I mean, let's just be honest, honest moment. American Christianity has a hard time talking about suffering. Okay? Now that we're all honest about it, let's look at the Bible. Let's get our nose in the scripture and see what it says. When you understand the suffering of your Savior, you have a greater reason to rejoice that he endured the greatest suffering this world has ever seen on your behalf. Jesus endured the greatest injustice of all time. The idea of suffering in Acts 5, 41 runs, really runs deeper than physical persecution. I mean, if you profess the name of Christ, you may be despised. Others will show you contempt. You may be treated with dishonor. Sure, you might not be whipped with a rod, but you can be thankful for that. You can be thankful for that. Let's be thankful for sure. But also pray for our brothers and sisters who live in countries where that is a reality. But we can be thankful. But you can't escape the vitriol that some people will have because they hear the name of Jesus and you're one of his followers. I know many of you have experienced it. I've experienced it. What I'm not trying to do is paint this dark picture of the world. That's not, my, that's not my motive. It's not my goal. But I also don't want to move away from the reality that sin, suffering, and death exist. We've got to contend with that. Regardless of what you've gone through or will go through, you're called to rejoice. You rejoice that this world is not your home. You rejoice knowing that there will be a day when Jesus will come back to judge the living and the dead. You can rejoice knowing that God is with you every step of the way. So yes, we must realize we are in a world, we are in this world to share about the name of Jesus, just like they were doing here in the first century. And we want to do that. We want to share the name of Jesus with every living soul that we interact with. Absolutely. But we must also realize the privilege it is for us to suffer for the name of Christ. I, I mean, I was intentional by saying the privilege it is to suffer for the name of Christ. And we don't, we don't view it as a privilege. But I think we should. I've tried to think more on this because we do live in a society, and I've already mentioned it, that views suffering different from what we read in the New Testament our society does everything it can to, in many ways, mitigate physical suffering, right? And to limit other means of persecution, just, just generally speaking. Some of this is great. We can rejoice at modern medicine and, and initiatives that take aim to uh, curtail uh, you know, verbal persecution, right? I, I rejoice that our schools are trying to do that, so to mitigate the bullying that goes on, I can rejoice over that. However, we know that we live in a world of sin and brokenness, which means we also live in a world where people will suffer. But as Christians, we need to make sure we do not view our personal suffering in entirely the same way as the world understands suffering, especially as it pertains to our faith in Christ. Suffering for the name of Christ is an honor and joy. And so at times, I think, the church misses this. I've heard this said before. Um, if you're suffering, that means you lack faith. If something goes wrong, you're not praying enough, you know? That kind of language, and everything's couched in that way. What, you're not doing enough. Your suffering is because of you and your lack of faith. 
All that is prosperity nonsense. Did Peter think he was suffering because he lacked faith in Christ? No. He realized he suffered because of his faith in Christ. And listen, suffering, being dishonored, being shamed for the name of Christ is not easy. Is not easy. Let's have no illusions that there wasn't groaning, weeping, and crying when the apostles were beaten. No illusions. I would have been. Enduring persecution is hard. However, understanding how to place our suffering in the gospel story allows us to appropriately endure. Rightly placing our suffering in the gospel story allows us to rejoice. When you have a biblical perspective of suffering, you can go back out to share the gospel without fear. The last verse in Acts 5 tells us the apostles continued to go to the temple to preach, right? After they were beaten, where'd they go? And there's Peter again, just like a boomerang, going back to the temple, Solomon's portico, everyone's gathered there, it's, the boy's going to preach. And now they began to go house to house. So if we pause there, as we think about the story of Acts, going from chapter 1 to chapter 28, going from the temple to house to house, people come, come from outside of Jerusalem to see the apostles, we see a movement taking place. This gospel message is beginning to go out, not just in Jerusalem, not just surrounding Jerusalem, but to the entire world. A little indicator that it's, it's pushing out. It's pushing out. All for Jesus. So let me go back to my opening statement. Opening question. Would you rejoice if you were being persecuted, verbally, physically, however, for the name of Christ? Would you rejoice? Tough question. I, I, I admit it. Tough question. Would you rejoice? Or would you respond, as I would be tempted to do, by criticizing my persecutors? Right? Would you complain because of your plight? Would you say that you deserved better? Or can you say, I will happily endure suffering, I will endure dishonor for the name of Christ? Even though I may be afflicted in every way, but I am not crushed. Perhaps I am perplexed, but not driven to despair. Perhaps I'm being persecuted, but I am not forsaken. I might be struck down, but never destroyed. Why? Because of Christ in me. 2 Corinthians 4, 8-10. to I'm going to end this sermon with a quote from... Uh, the late R.C. Sproul. He comments on the attitude of the apostles in this situation, which I think is helpful for us. He says, they did not complain of ill treatment. There is no higher honor or glory for a human being to receive on this planet than that of partaking in the humiliation of Christ. That is the only part of his glory we will share, that he will share with us in this world. In heaven, the rest of his glory will be showered upon us. But now, this is important, Christians, but now, 
we glory in the cross. We glory in what Jesus has done. What he has done and what we could not do for ourselves. We glory in the cross. Let's pray.